0: Welcome to another episode of the New Books in East Asia podcast, part of the New Books Network. Uh, My name is Nathan Hobson, and uh, today we will be interviewing Robert Jacobs, one of the co-editors, along with Nico Taylor, of Reimagining Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Nuclear Humanities in the Post-Cold War. Uh, This edited volume, published by Rutledge in 2018, was developed out of a special uh, special journal issue of critical military studies, organized on the occasion of the 70th anniversary of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Taylor and Jacobs have gathered together a subtly interwoven set of papers that uh, offer a distinctly post-Cold War perspective on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and not just on the bombings, but on their long and continuing aftermaths. At various levels of granularity and expansiveness, the contributors present a diverse set of approaches and findings to what the editors describe as the exciting new field of nuclear humanities. So we have here uh, with us today, uh, Robert Jacobs, who is one of the co-editors of the book. Uh, And uh, so, Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. And unfortunately, I know that your uh, co-editor, Nico Taylor, was Uh, not uh, available. Uh, So the burden all falls on you, but thank you so much for uh, joining us. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here, Nathan. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about um, sort of who you and and Nico are and and how you came to work on this project together and a little bit about the context of the project itself? Uh, Sure. Absolutely. Um, uh, I myself, I'm a historian of
1: science and technology. I focus on the history of nuclear technologies, nuclear weapons, Uh, nuclear power and radiation and radiation exposures, I work at the Hiroshima Peace Institute, which is a research institute in uh, Hiroshima City University. Um, Nico has been working for many years in the field of nuclear humanities, which is where this book is situated. And I became aware of his work through his efforts on uh, on the Museum of Nuclear Harm, which is a digital site that Nico has created and through his own uh, academic output. And the two of us ended up chatting and and talking about putting together an edited volume for the fairly new journal Critical Military Studies. Uh, So we co-edited an issue of Critical Military Studies around some of the themes of this book that included some of the authors of this book. And through that collaboration, we decided to expand it and to invite other authors in and, uh, and then proceed to a full edited book, which was just published earlier this year by Rutledge.
0: Yeah, uh, you mentioned in there uh, this idea of the nuclear humanities. I wonder if you could just uh, you know, and you 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 talk about it in the book as an exciting new field. Uh, and for me, it was it, it's something I really I hadn't heard of and, and know nothing about. I wonder if you could just sort of uh, for the audience tell us a little bit more about what that field is.
1: Uh, certainly, it's it's essentially. Uh an entry into grappling with nuclear themes very broadly defined in a wide range of humanities uh, focuses and uh, using a wide range of humanities methodologies. Um, it, you know, our, We understand this piece of work as situated uh, as an outgrowth and a, and, a, and a further growth of the kinds of nuclear scholarship that were more typical during the Cold War era, uh, in which case there was... Quite a bit of work done on nuclear policy. There was a little bit of work being done on nuclear popular culture. Some specific works done on nuclear uh, science fiction, on, on literature studies. And in the last few years, primarily since the end of the Cold War, it's begun to emerge that there are people working on nuclear themes across a broad range of humanities fields. So you have people who are doing studies of architectural history that focus on fallout shelters and how fallout shelters, uh, encode and express various social mores, uh, gendered mores, racial mores, ethnic mores, class mores. Um, and you have people working in art history. You have, uh, people working in a broad range of humanities that are much, that are doing much more integrative works on nuclear, themes, nuclear tropes, the effect of nuclear technologies on culture. Uh, and so these, as opposed to being conducted in separate containers the way that it was through a lot of the Cold War, they've become much more integrative. And so scholars are more in dialogue with each other. They're using methodologies across disciplines, and, uh, and so this field has been referred to as nuclear humanities. Uh, it's, it, it it stands in a sense, its definition stands in contrast to that scholarship that was more typical of the Cold War period. Uh, and for us, one of the things that uh, that we feel about it is there was a lot of scholarship in the Cold War era that felt transfixed, as it were, by the threat of nuclear war, the threat in the Cold War of a large global thermonuclear war between the US and the former Soviet Union. So much of the work that was being done during that period of time was, had a component to it, e- even in the humanities, uh, had a component to it that was, in a sense, almost activist, that it was trying to wake up the reader to the dire threat to civilization that these weapons posed and activate them to oppose the use of weapons and to oppose nuclear war. Um, Since the Cold War ended, the threat of nuclear detonation hasn't gone away. However, scholars have sort of relaxed in what it is they're trying to accomplish with their scholarship. They're not trying to uh, make their scholarship a a, a participant in a call to arms, as it were, uh, but rather more broadly... Uh, investigating the deep nuances and and, uh, coded messages and counter narratives that were replete throughout the nuclear culture of the Cold War era and the post Cold War era. So uh, the distinctive nature of this scholarship for us and for many other scholars has sort of led to the label of nuclear humanities to be kind of broadly applied to this kind of work.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That was really interesting. And it was a very, very helpful um, explanation in sort of understanding the context of the book. Um, And so I wanted to ask a little bit actually about uh, more uh, about that context. You know, one of the sort of things that really struck me in your introduction was, um, and some of the authors take this up as well, this idea that nuclear technologies um, are produced, you know, uh, very quickly and then the consequences are, you know, for all intents and purposes, endless. Um, and so we have this sort of context of, of, you know, a very long unfolding history. And I think, you know, what you've just said about the nuclear humanities uh, was really interesting in the sense of, you know, how that history is contextualized—is it post? You know, is it Cold War? Is it post Cold War? Um, but you know, you also you open the book uh, by saying, you know, a great deal has been written about Hiroshima, um, and I know there's this. Problem that some of the authors address as well, which is that not a great deal has been written about Nagasaki. But this was, you know, it's some of it's one of those things that I think a lot of readers are going to come to the book thinking, okay, well, yeah, I mean, yes, a great deal has been written about Hiroshima. You know, what what is there new that can be written about Hiroshima in a sense? I think there's this feeling that it's sort of almost overrepresented, um, and so I was interested in you know, sort of how how that. Um, how how you tackled that, and I think that the you know the sort of post Cold War context that you just gave was really helpful in understanding that. Is there anything you'd like to add to that?
1: Um, yes, there there a lot of what the a uh, different authors in the book uh, grapple with is sort of the inheritance of that Hiroshima uh, Hiroshima trope that with that we have inherited that it's it's fairly. Constructed and ossified in certain forms, and in doing so, uh, there's many, many things that are excluded and uh, so for example, you know w- what we know about Hiroshima or what we receive uh, what we've received in the in the past in terms of how we grapple with and understand Hiroshima is that Hiroshima was a site of tremendous trauma, and it was a warning to us about the dangers that lay ahead. Uh, with the use of nuclear weapons against urban populations, uh, against human populations. Um, and so on the one hand, it was an instructive to us. Uh, on the other hand, there the other way that it's been received is through testimony, survivor testimony, um, and the capacity for wit- people to bear witness to what happened here. And first of all, our our consumption, our uh, compassion for these lived experiences, but again, they are almost always positioned as goal-oriented, and and mm. that is that through hearing these testimonies, we will become uh, we will become active in opposing the use of nuclear weapons, uh, and we will also become uh, people who support peace and peace broadly, but peace very specifically in terms of the elimination of nuclear weapons. So we, we have Hiroshima positioned largely in this way, whereas in that construction, there's, there's a ton of things that are left out, of course, uh, which some of the individual authors deal with, you know, sort of what most quickly comes to mind for many people is the exclusion from those narratives of uh, the presence in Hiroshima and Nagasaki of 50,000 Koreans Mm-hmm. Uh, how did, how did they end up in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? What was the history that brought them to those places? What was their experience? What was their experience of the bombing? What was their experience as hibakusha, uh, which is the Japanese word for people who survived the bombing? What was their experience afterwards? Uh, this is, this is not a part of the story. Um, so in a sense, there's most of what there is to learn and to know about Hiroshima is really still ahead for us. Uh, we have Hiroshima as a sentinel. We have Hiroshima as a place of horrific death. Uh, we have Hiroshima as a place of witness. Um, but those are starting points, rather than fi- you know points of finality. Um, what many of the authors deal with in in a variety of different ways in the book is uh, it can be referred to as memory culture and memory studies. So. What was being laid down was what the memory of Hiroshima is, which is what happened when the bomb exploded, how was Hiroshima impacted, what was the experience of the people who were here well we we in various different uh, settings in here in Japan, in the United States, uh internationally uh, in places like Korea and China, which were places that suffered under Japan during the Imperial period and the war um, those memories are constructed very differently, and those memories are constructed for different purposes. And so a lot of a lot of people and a lot of participants in the in the book are grappling with various aspects of that memory culture, what it's doing, how it's operating, how it's expressed. Um, so there's just just like uh, just like any historical period, as we ourselves evolve and as our modes of inquiry evolve, our capacity to grapple with history you know, uh, only becomes more complicated and nuanced.
0: Yeah, I think that was um, really interesting to me how you're talking about a kind of uh, the, the the instrumentalization of Hiroshima that that has you know dominated um, our. Uh, you know, modes of inquiry and 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 you know, eventually produced knowledge about Hiroshima and and, and Nagasaki. And I think that this is a, a sort of an interesting um, project of. It's not just post Cold War. It's not just nuclear humanities, but it's also sort of, in in a in a sense, like post instrumentalized. That there's a you know an attempt to sort of see um uh Hiroshima not through that, you know, particular activist lens, whatever that might be, um, and, and Nagasaki as well. Um it's you know it's, uh, um so I wanted to talk about the the ways in which uh the the authors do that and 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 you and and Nico uh lay out in the introduction um five uh, what you what you call pathways. And this roughly I think equates to you know sort of book sections, right? Sort of a part one, part two. Um and there are five. Um, The first of which uh, is uh, work that deals with uh, testimony from lived experience. Um, And the second, um, as you've just mentioned, is about the processes of memorialization and commemoration. Um, And then you have uh, Pathway 3, which is about... um, the, uh, experience of ordinary people and their resentment, their suffering. Um, and also I thought very interestingly, the, the idea of forgiveness, um, uh, uh, related to both nuclear attacks, um, path four, uh, excuse me, pathway four, um, is, uh, this thing, which I've already alluded to, which, you know, this idea that, uh, um, the the bombs the, the dropping of the bombs was sort of an instant in history but the consequences in terms of uh, the you know environmental change the fact that every person on the planet is you know has internalized uh, you know radionuclides from those attacks um, and 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 other sort of nuclear testing et cetera um, of course but that that's a really that that forms pathway number four um, and then finally um, you have this really interesting uh, dialogue. Uh, between um, you know, one um, artist and two scholars, uh, in, in which is a, a sort of unique, as you put it, sort of contribution to this new field of nuclear humanities. And so what I'd like to do uh, in the rest of the interview is to sort of you know, go through each of those pathways um, and each of the uh, uh, works uh, one by one so if if that's all right i'd like to start off with uh the the first chapter uh which is uh by eric ropers it's called contested spaces of ethnicity zainichi korean accounts of the atomic bombings and this chapter um so roper is trying to uh trace the efforts of the the Zainichi Korean, the resident Korean uh, community in Japan, to construct a public narrative of the Korean uh, survivors, uh, the Hibaksha, um, and you know th- this is from a very critical uh, position uh, as. The Zainichi community has been, you know, marginalized within the the public memory, uh, both within Japan and globally, as 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 you've mentioned. Um, and so, if, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, about the chapter. Yes. Uh, well, uh, Roper
1: is dealing with uh, Eric is dealing with the history, as you mentioned, of the Korean Hibaksha. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, there were fifty thousand Koreans. Uh, it. it it's a, it's not a certain number fifty to seventy thousand Koreans that were located in either Hiroshima or Nagasaki at the time of the attacks, uh, the majority of whom were killed in the attacks. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, uh, as as Hibaksha as a community came to be active and seeking uh, and seeking and, and achieving certain legal and compensatory statuses for medical care, uh, and various other social supports in Japan, uh, after ni- after the 1960s, um, the Korean community was explicitly left out of this, these, uh, these were available only to Japanese hibakusha. And beginning in the nineteen late 1970s and 1980s, Korean hibakusha began to press for their legal access to uh, status as hibakusha and access to medical care as hibakusha. So it's been a long process, which has in a sense only finally come to legal fruition uh, just three or four years ago here in Japan. Um, So there's been quite a lot of scholarship in the last few years uh, approaching the experiences of the Korean hibaksha and looking at how it reveals dynamics in society. And a lot of what Eric is doing in this chapter is he's looking at the way that the uh, transcription and inclusion of Korean uh, testimony, uh, Korean hibaksha testimony, is in a sense uh, trying to place back into the history of Hiroshima, the prior history of occupation and uh, uh, colonial expansion uh, and colonial activities by Japan. So Korean Hibakusha testimonies tend to be inclusive of the context of how did these Korean people come to be in Hiroshima, how did they come to be in Nagasaki, and then how were they treated afterwards. So while their testimonies speak like all Hibakusha testimonies to the actual events of August 6th and August 9th, these testimonies uh, in a sense are – positioning themselves against what emerged in Japan as a dominant narrative of Japanese victimhood by atomic bombs. And in a sense, challenging that narrative by offering the counter-narrative of people who were victimized themselves by the Japanese imperial society, and then in a sense became second victims during the nuclear attacks. So the inclusion of these testimonies is seen by Eric as a political act uh, seeking to reveal these colonial dynamics through the interest with Hibaksha experience that is sort of globally, uh, globally consumed. So uh, this is partly what Eric is is doing is is both bringing that history back for people who have not encountered it yet, but also understanding the way that the inclusion of the Korean hibaksha is more than simply the inclusion of a community that had been excluded from the history and from the collection of testimony of experiences, but but in a sense, a political activism to reveal the broader dynamics that were going on before August 6th and August 9th. Inherent in this critique is the notion that, uh, which is very commonly felt in countries that were victimized by Japan during World War II, specifically China and Korea, but also in Southeast Asia, that the nuclear attacks were used as a way to reposition Japan as a victim of World War II rather than as an aggressor in World War II. Uh, this, is, of course, has been challenged in many ways by these countries. They have holidays on, you know, Independence Days on the day that Japan surrendered. Um, however, uh, the inclusion of Hibakusha testimony, specifically of the Korean Hibakusha, is a way of of broadening that critique to a more global audience for whom Hiroshima and Nagasaki relate to people's own sense of, of their own possible risk and destiny. Um, so he's, this is what's, uh, Eric is doing in this chapter. He, and so in a sense, he's looking at how memory culture was constructed in a way that was politically here in Japan, especially that was politically advantageous for Japan as a means of remediating its image and, uh, its sense of self after world war II, uh, how, that memory culture, how the, the expansion of memory culture to include other communities allows not just additional memories to join and additional people to join into the history of this experience, but a much broader critique of, uh, what, how that first memory culture was constructed.
0: Okay, yeah, thank you very much. I, and this is, you know, just just for uh, I think most of our listeners are probably familiar. But if you could uh, maybe say a, a little bit, you've alluded to this a number of times. Say a little bit about um, you know, what the 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 Zainichi, the resident Korean community, is. Just uh, for those for those who weren't able to, to follow the, the whole conversation.
1: Sure. Well, certainly, there's been a long history between Japan and Korea. But in terms of the historical moment uh, that, that we're, that were uh, centering around, uh, you know, Korea was annexed by the expanding Japanese empire in 1910. Uh, many Koreans were brought to Japan. Some Koreans immigrated for, f- uh, financial reasons to Japan, uh, for work in, during this period of time. And then especially during the years of the war, and as the war went worse and worse for Japan, there were many forced laborers brought over, uh, and, uh, and so to work in Japanese industries since most, ja- many Japanese males were in the military and were away. Some were even conscripted. So you have a very large Korean community inside Japan, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, which had always been uh, very much discriminated against. I'm sure many of your listeners famously know that after the earthquake and the great earthquake in Tokyo, uh in, I think it was twenty three, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, September 23rd. Um, yep. Thank you. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, there was an attack and a massacre of Koreans who were blamed for causing the earthquake. Well obviously we know that Koreans didn't, and I'm sure people knew Koreans didn't cause the earthquake, but this was simply a time of distress in which Koreans were the vulnerable target population. So, uh, so you have a population that had been very much uh, subject here in Japan. Um, then, during the period of time, and, and then many of them were working in Nagasaki and living in working in Nagasaki and Hiroshima at the time the two cities were attacked, and many of them became hibakusha as a result of that. Uh, most. A a significant portion of this population was returned to Korea once the war was over. This includes people who had never lived in Korea, who had been born in Japan, uh, who may or may not have spoken Korean fluently. Um... Uh, Mr. Sun, the first Korean hibaksha who entered Japan illegally and then fought for his rights to be legally declared a hibaksha, he, for example, uh, and this was in the, the, he entered in the late 70s and it was in the early 80s that these court cases were undergoing. He he claimed that he never felt at home in Korea because he had never lived there before he was sent to Korea after the war and he didn't speak Korean and felt like an outsider there. Um, So so part of the inclusion is, uh, it, part of the inclusion is, of Korean hibakusha is the actual legal, physical inclusion of Korean hibakusha as people who have rights to the kinds of medical care that Japanese hibakusha have that specialized medical care for people suffering from radiation related illnesses. Uh, but the other part is to have that inclusion bring, shine light on just these, just this history. Uh, so that it becomes a part of what this story is. The memory culture becomes pivoted and expanded.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. And that, that's also a great segue into the second pathway, which is about uh, that you know memory culture, as you've put it, these processes of memorialization uh, and commemoration. Um, and so I'd like to jump into uh, the second chapter here, which is uh, Makeda Best's Contribution, Memory and Survival in Everyday Textures, Ishiyushi Miyako's Hiroshima. Um, and so this is a, a, a work about um, a... Uh, uh, an, an artist well a, a photographer um who and his work on uh, on excuse me her work excuse me on um, on hiroshima uh, a 2008 piece uh titled hiroshima slash uh, hiroshima one written in hiragana the Japanese phonetic script and the other uh in the roman alphabet um and in this um, chapter i mean uh, uh, Makeda best is is uh, working with um, Ishiuchi's uh struggles to uh deal with the meaning and and witness uh the meanings of witness um and the relationship of the uh present day viewers to uh the the bomb bombings victims etc um and this I, I thought the sort of context of this was re- was really interesting because uh you know the there's a a really interesting point that best makes about the um uh, occupation era censorship, uh which I think not everybody's really aware of sort of that in the in the the context of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but that images um were uh confiscated, destroyed, suppressed. Um, so it wasn't until after the American occupation ended that photographic records began to come out. And so in this sense, you know, photography has a very interesting, you know, historical place in the intervention in into our, our knowledge about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so I see this as sort of a, a contribu you know a contribution to that that uh uh scholarship about photography, um, you know, rather particularly as an intervention. If you could tell us a little bit more about the chapter, though.
1: Absolutely. Um, as you mentioned, uh the chapter is about Miyako Ishiuchi's uh work and the way in which it sort of um, it altered the photographic dialogue uh about remembering Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, in a sense, it, it was done specifically in reaction and in to counter uh, what had been the the prevalent way that we photographically understand. And, and even here in Japan, immediately after the war, as you said, for some period of time, the way that uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were understood, which in a sense was as places rather than as communities of people. Um, so the kinds of photographs that were typical are the kinds of photographs that most people. Would think of immediately when they think of Hiroshima or Nagasaki, and that is photographs of mushroom clouds, photographs of structures, buildings, photographs of landscapes that have uh, that that seemingly have com- uh, buildings and homes erased or wiped off of them. And this reinforces our relationship to these to these places not as communities of people that were attacked, but rather as landscapes that were attacked. And so uh photographers in the nineteen fifties, uh Makita is talking about, began to in the late nineteen fifties, as some images of Hibaksha uh began to filter through, uh began to focus their work more on human beings rather than on uh landscape and artifact. And so uh what what uh, what Makade is appreciating in this in this work is specifically the the tactile nature of these images being presented in uh, in that 2008 work and exhibition, in which you have lots of photographs of people, you have photographs of. Uh, you, not just uh portrait photographs of people but photographs of skin and bodies photographs of textiles people's personal accessories in a sense it's a move to shift from the notion of what was attacked uh from places to people to physical things mm-hmm. uh th- think lived things things that all of us have in our lives and this helps reorient us towards survivors This helps reorient us towards the event itself uh, as something that happened not to places, but to bodies, to people, and to people's belongings, and to the things. When when you think of a nuclear explosion sitting at your desk or wherever you might be listening to this, you might think of it as broadly destroying the town you're in. But there's also the things that are right next to you, the things that you're holding in your hands, the things that you're wearing. And this is what it really happens to. This is the intimacy of, of that experience. And so these photographers were moving to make our relationship to both survivors and to the events in themselves to be more personal and more, uh, more human and more experiential by the, the photographic focus on ta- the tactile nature of the things that experienced the nuclear attack. Um, so it's, it's part of a shifting of the focus in memory culture away from the, dr- the dramatic technology Uh, and the dramatic impacts of the technology, the explosion of the weapon, the mushroom cloud, the destruction wrought to physical structures, and reminds us that what this really was was something that happened to hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, So this is, again, a way of reorienting memory culture. Um, I think that when, when, I'm, when I'm teaching about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the nuclear attacks on them and the way that Americans, which, you know, I'm an American, uh, the way that Americans think about these attacks, you know, we think of them as things that happened to places and that cities were kind of erased. But for the most part, most Americans couldn't name one person. Uh, if if they can, then it's uh, Sadako-san, Uh who the the girl who folded the paper cranes that might be the one person that people in america might be able to name Uh, so for for americans especially this happened to places rather than to people so that's the way the memory culture has been constructed outside of japan inside of japan it's different specifically in hiroshima and nagasaki it's different where the memory culture is very focused on specific individuals and specific uh lived lives uh, so these photographic, uh, the, these photographers, and specifically this photographic book and exhibition is taking that local culture in a sense, and opening it out for the world to see it the way that it's seen here by people for whom these were family members and friends.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's, that, that's a really powerful point about the the intimacy and the personal nature of uh, the 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 tragedy uh, that that was both of the bombings, um, and I think you know it's sort of interesting because the 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 next chapter uh, that follows, which is Ron Zweigenberg's chapter, um, takes a, a very different tack toward thinking about commemoration and memorialization, and actually goes to uh, you know you are talking about I, I'm I'm also an American, but you know the 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 things that in particular Americans know about Hiroshima, and, and I think. One of them has got to be the Peace Park. If you know, if you've been to Hiroshima, you've probably been to the Peace Park. Um, but I think you know, uh, Ron Zweigenberg has done an interesting thing in in talking about um, the uh, conflict and controversy that sort of un- underlies the uh, creation of the Peace Park. Um, and so, in uh, in Zweigenberg's, uh chapter, which is the most modern city in the world, Isamu Noguchi's cenotaph controversy and Hiroshima City of Peace. Um, the, he, he talks about the, the, uh, conflicts, uh, under uh, that 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 surrounded the rejection of Isamu Noguchi's design for the cenotaph in the peace park so i wonder if you could tell us uh, first a little bit about the the peace park itself um and sort of uh you know i think i think many people have been there but that's different than sort of knowing uh you know how it was created what it is what was behind it and then um take us through uh Ron Zweigenberg's article about the the uh controversy around the cenotaph
1: Certainly. Um, well the the Peace Park, of course, is the uh, official constructed memorial to remember the nuclear attacks and to remember those who died in the nuclear attacks. Uh, it's one of the most visited tourist sites in Japan. Um, it's also a- almost a requisite visit for school children all around Japan. Any Anytime you're in the Peace Park, there's just... Uh, group after group of students passing through the peace park from all around Japan. It, um, so it's, it's a place of, uh, originally it was a bustling neighborhood in the center of Hiroshima. Uh, it's the neighborhood where the first, uh, movie cinema in Japan was built. Um, uh, so it was very much at the, at the heart of Hiroshima civic culture. And it's at the top of the peace park. There's a bridge where the where the peace park is on Hiroshima is a city. Uh, it's it's a river delta city. Uh, so there's a river that comes down out of the mountains and splits into seven different rivers. I think it's seven different rivers, uh, branches that that come down through the city. So in in a sense, these areas are thought of as islands uh, that are separated by the branches of the river. And this area at the very top of it, it's where uh what where. A river branches into two branches, so it it come, There's a river on either side of it, and at the top of of that uh, piece of land, at that island, there's a bridge that crosses over. So it forms a T. There's a, a street and then a bridge that comes out from this island, and uh, that T bridge was the aiming point for the nuclear attack, uh, and it was the aiming point because it could be seen easily from above in the air, and also because it was in the center of town. Um, the, the weapon actually veered off slightly to the east and it, it didn't explode over the, over the park, over the bridge, or specifically over the dome. It was a few blocks – it ended up exploding a few blocks to the east. But this piece of land was uh, what the city chose to uh, utilize to create its permanent memorial and museum uh, for people to visit, and in a sense, to express to the world that Hiroshima was becoming reborn and was reborn. Uh, and so, uh, at the time, there were survivors who were living there, and of course, the city seized this land in order to create this park. Uh, the park. Uh, so, part of the 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 real virtue of Ron's work both in this book and also in his other scholarship is to take this idealized place, this idealized landscape, the peace park, which is meant to convey the horrors of nuclear attack and meant to uh, compel nuclear abolition um, and look at it for what it, what it necessarily had to have also been, which was city politics. Uh, people made decisions, land was appropriated, Uh, people got contracts. So all of that normal human activity, uh, it it can appear to be a little bit dirty when you're talking about a a place of of ideals and international aspirations for peace. Um, And this, this, again, is part of the real value of his work altogether, is taking overly sentimentalized things and showing us that it was full of these. All of these events and activities were full of real people who acted like real people, uh, as opposed to acting like idealized people who only had you know virtue and peace on their minds. Um, so, partly what uh, what we uh, what, what, and many of the author other authors in the book do allude to Ron's work, um, especially his book on Hiroshima: the Birth of uh, the Origins of Memory Culture, Global Memory Culture. Uh, which really outlines the establishment of this culture in Hiroshima is that the establishment of this culture uh, shows what was really going on here in the city. so when this land was dis- when it was decided that this land was would be used as a memorial, people needed to be evicted from that land, and those were real people for whom this was not a good thing. Uh, when the city opened up a gift shop inside the newly built museum. All of the people with small stands that were selling gifts to tourists and trinkets to tourists had to be cleared out. So in a sense, what you see is you see the city enacting a monopoly on commerce at the cost of local small vendors. And this is part of the reality of how we all have a lovely peace park with a beautiful museum and gift shop. So uh, looking underneath that is really uh, very pragmatic and it it helps to deconstruct the notion of uh, idealized actions for uh, for purely d- uh, benevolent purposes. Um, in this specific case, what uh, what Ryan is looking at is the design of the park. Uh, the design of the park partly was, uh, by Kenzo uh, Tange, was partly to express the the emergence of Hiroshima as an idealized modern city
0: now. It, yeah. I'm sorry. Can you, yeah. can you, uh, tell us a little bit about, um, uh, Tange himself? I think that's a really important bit of context. Um, cause he's, he's a, you know, he's a very prominent, um, uh, architect in Japan, but not everyone in our international audience is going to know, uh, who Tange is.
1: Uh, yes. Uh, well, actually, I have to pause for a second because I'm not as familiar with his earlier history. Yeah, I,
0: I have to say, I mean, I'm, my my knowledge of his early history, I think actually that the Peace Park was one of his uh, most important early projects. He's also, I think, he's very well known for having done the uh, Olympic Stadium uh, in Tokyo for 64. Uh, he was also the uh, main planner for the uh, the World's Fair in um Osaka in 1970, uh, known as Expo 70, um, and so he has this really sort of important place in a lot of these, um, you know, mega events and public spaces that defined um, Japan's sort of post-war revival um, and its its uh, a, you know sort of re-entry into the international order. Um, so I think he's you know he's a really interesting character in that sense, and the fact that he's um, you know, as, as I think, uh, Ron brings out in the, um, in the piece, you know, that he's interested in this, um, you know, sort of ultra modern, uh, you know, uh, uh, a vision for Hiroshima and in particular, um, uh, that that's carried out in sort of this disaster capitalist way, as you've been alluding to where, you know, you're, you're, uh, there's a, a very, um, you know uh, sometimes a little dirty process of kind of, you know, appropriation of land and space and this, you know, vision of the zero year and the zero space, this idea of free land and free space that can then be built upon. Um, I just, I think it's sort of interesting context the whole thing. And I'm sorry to have interrupted you.
1: No, actually, thank you very much for adding that context. As I clearly am revealing, I'm not a Japanologist by training. Um, but exactly. And in this case, uh, that's that's exactly the way that this that in a sense the vision of what this park would be was constructed was that this was a tabla rasa, that Hiroshima and in a sense this is an an uh actualization of of apocalyptic tropes and apocalyptic motifs uh which have long accompanied nuclear Te- nuclear: the visions of nuclear technology and the imaginary of nuclear technology is that uh, what gets accomplished through the use of these technologies is the erasure of the past, good and bad, and the creation of a blank slate upon which a more ideal world can be built. Um, you'll find this in in almost all science fiction stories that in, that invoke nuclear apocalypse. Um, but here, this is exactly the way that this was approached as as a park, and the park itself is a journey uh, towards that actualized, m- modern, capable, technologically, uh, technologically empowering uh, vision. Uh, the The sight line that goes from the A bomb dome to the cenotaph and the and the flame for for those that were lost to the ultra modernist museum itself. Uh, the, the dome, which represents the world that was the, the, the flawed world, which we've now moved past. The dome is literally outside of the park. It's physically outside of the park, but it's in the sight line. Then you have the memorialization at the cenotaph for those who died. And then the, uh, the not, not just the restoration, but the, the Phoenix like rising of the modern, uh, the modern, inclusive, fully capable uh, society that Hiroshima would model to the world. And of course, this is extremely contradictory for a lot of people because Hiroshima, for so many people, especially in the immediate years after the war, represented uh, a proof of the failure of of the notion of modernity, uh, much like the Holocaust. And so, the notion that you would take this place that was destroyed because of the dark side of the project, uh, the Enlightenment project of modernity and rationality, uh, the use of science to essentially treat human beings as matter rather than as uh, as living creatures, um, that you would take the space in which this, this occurred and use that as a place in which to express the triumph of of the modernist vision uh, is is of course one of the strange juxtapositions to how the the park ended up being uh, being formalized.
0: Yeah, so part of that process of formalization that you've just laid out so nicely was the rejection of uh, Isamu Noguchi's design for the cenotaph, which is, I think, the the sort of you know primary thrust of what Ron is talking about. Is this it's it's not part of the history precisely because it was rather specifically left out of the history um and and so if you could tell us a little bit about um who isamu no was and and what the design was and why it ended up not being part of this uh, official uh public commemorative uh you know space uh of the peace park
1: absolutely uh uh, Naguchi was uh very very prominent at that time a very very prominent artist but he was an american uh, who was half japanese uh, and and obviously uh, japanese american half mm-hmm. japanese american um, and uh his vision for the cenotaph was much more complicated than this larger narrative uh physically articulated narrative that uh Tange had intended even though Tange supported his vision for what the cenotaph would be it 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 involved uh recessed spaces that were sort of like hellish spaces uh dark interior spaces in which which was to be where the suffering and the tragedy occurred, and then an emergence upward from that uh some somewhat invoking the notion of a womb and a rebirth, but of a much more tortured sense than the positivist vision for the park as a whole, the way the park was finally articulated um and so this th- his vision for the cenotaph was supported by Tangi but uh but with uh, uh, some but then uh after the after there was support for the use of this uh this model for building the cenotaph which is the place of memorialization in the middle of the park um his uh his commission was canceled um we don't know exactly why it was canceled but there's very very wide suspicions which were uh played up in the press at the time that it was because he was not fully japanese he was not japanese japanese mm-hmm. but rather american japanese and only half actually japanese and that this uh this cenotaph needed to be designed by a japanese person it's hard to say we can't say today uh because uh we can't say today exactly what was the 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 impetus behind it whether that was because of his ethnicity or whether it was a rejection by people in the city council and city government of the vision of what the uh cenotaph would be and the the, essentially the narrative structure of it of much much more sorrowful suffering and uh and less positivist uh emphasis um so we don't know how how it would have altered the experience of the peace park and we can't be certain exactly uh what the cancellation was based upon um in in either way it's kind of an indictment uh because if it was if it was that the impetus to cancel it was the artistic structure of the uh of the model of of how the cenotaph itself would be structured then it is in some ways a rejection of having a more uh embodied sense of pain and sorrow and suffering from this more positivist construct that that in itself is is tragedy and uh and uh and and, and is really an indictment of the of the eventual for, of the eventual design that was settled upon. If it was the ethnicity of the artist, then that reinforces the very things that Roper is talking about in the right. first chapter of how this narrative has to be constructed as a narrative of Japanese. Um so
0: yeah and I think this is this is actually uh, that's that's super helpful because it also helps us not only to reflect on some of the connections uh to to the chapters that we've already talked about but it's also a great um sort of segue into the uh into chapter 4 which is Jessica Rapson's uh chapter uh which is called Hiroshima remediated uh, or remediated, I guess, uh, nuclear cosmopolitan memory in the War Game 1965 and the Museum of Anti-Memorials, A-N-T-E Memorials uh, in t- t- 2012. Um, and because uh, Rapson is is looking at, as she puts it, the um uh, conflict uh, sort of irreconcilable conflict between um, these uh, sort of dyads of progress versus discussion past versus pu- future self other universal specific local global and the sort of uh, the the you know, we've been talking um, in all the chapters thus far about the kind of violences that have uh, been perpetrated, uh, whether that's the actual violence of the bombs or whether it's the violence of exclusions uh, in co- proper processes of mem- you know, of commemoration and memorialization. Um, and so, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, the way that. Uh, Rapson takes this on in relation to these two works: uh, the War Game, uh, 1965, and the Museum of Anti-Memorials, 2012, and what the relationship is between those two works.
1: Uh, absolutely, um, in a sense, uh, part of what uh, Jessica is grappling with, and, and also Stephanie Fischel in the in the mm-hmm. chapter that follows it, is the narration of these events in the West, specifically. Uh, among the allied nations uh who were at war with japan um and uh she talks about how the 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 us memory of hiroshima is a bit problematic uh and in the uk specifically she talks about the uh film the war game which is an extremely powerful film that was made in 1965 in the UK by Peter Watkins, and I would recommend for anybody who hasn't seen it to watch it. It for for a film which which we've all seen a number of them now. A film about a possible nuclear war in the future. Uh, that's this particular one, as, as some are, is set as sort of a documentary. Um, this is a this is really the first one and incredibly powerful one, um, it was eventually not it was intended to be shown on the BBC, but the BBC refused to show it. They cancelled it uh, and it was only later that it became available and and widely viewed now it 's fairly easy to view i believe it 's on youtube um, and it it what it is is it is a documentary examination of a nuclear attack in the future on uh, in kent england the u k and it utilizes quite a bit of footage from Hiroshima from Nagasaki it also utilizes footage from incendiary bombings uh primarily in Dresden but also a little bit of Japan and it constructs for the viewer a sense of what would happen if there was a nuclear attack on the UK and it is evoking in the viewer uh, in intentionally and subtly it is invoking uh understandings and feelings and images of the actual nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and it it very much sets a motif for the way films that are more familiar to us, like the day after or threads uh tend to follow in the subsequent. Decades which is that instead of focusing on why the war is happening what are the political machinations behind the war what are the decisions being made that lead to this war it focuses on the people who just are living their lives and for whom the war simply happens uh, to them uh, in in this sense it evokes the memory of people in Hiroshima rather than questions of which are which uh, uh, Jessica refers to uh, in 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 terms of the problematic nature of the u s narrative, how many lives were saved, what you know uh, did it end the war things like that, the way that the memory culture is constructed in the u s These are things that focus on decision makers uh, this film and the films that were subsequent to it focus on the people that this happened to, so it evokes the actual residents the people in hiroshima and nagasaki that it happened to by placing you in the position they were in which is somebody walking down the street and suddenly there's a nuclear attack somebody at work and there's a nuclear attack um so it it very much dwells with humans local humans rather than the government the governmental activities are in the background to what's present in the film and she then talks about the use of this film uh in uh exactly the uh the exhibition that you were talking about, which is the Museum of Anti-Memorials, which was an exhibition in Taipei. Um, and and in a sense, what was being focused on there was how art can affect – how art presentations in art can alter the future. Can art be used as a way of altering the future, uh, possible futures? So in a sense, it is – uh, an anti-memorial it's a memorial of something that hasn't happened the nuclear attack on Kent uh the nuclear war that would that was shown in the day after the nuclear war that's depicted in you know, a great deal of cold war uh art uh, and story literature and films that in in a sense the act of creating these works is using art to bring us into possible futures as a means of possibly affecting which future tracks we take as as people. Um, so it's the relationship of memorial not to memorialized past futures, but to memorializing potential futures. Uh, so it's a reorientation of memory culture. And in a sense, in this in this way you can see its linkages to some of what I had mentioned before, the the notion of Nuclear, the use of nuclear imagery in the news, uh, the use of Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, as inherited uh, sites of historical trauma, the use of these as an activity, as an activist tool, to uh, in order to alter uh, the the dire possibility of uh, of future use of nuclear weapons.
0: Yeah, you, you've um, not only summarized that really nicely, and I think put that into a, a really important context, but you've also sort of begun to reference uh, the the next chapter, which is the last chapter in this uh, pathway or, or section, which is a, a chapter called uh, Nuclear Memory by Stephanie Fischel. Um, and I, I just say, just personally, I, 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 really like the way the chapter opens. It says, "Remembering is often a struggle." I mean, I guess I would only add that forgetting is often a struggle too. Um, and that's, and, and, and in fact, the whole book, I thought this was, you know, what was interesting was that it is about, uh, in many ways, about the fact that both remembering and forgetting are a struggle, and that they are in many ways this, you know, flip sides of the same coin. Um, it, but so, Fashel's talking about the. Um, the, the, the bombing of Hiroshima uh, in particular and the commemoration of that, which is, uh, you know, again, what the whole, uh, the, the, that whole section is on. But in particular, she gets to uh, one case study, which we've also, we've already talked about in Rons Weigenberg's uh, chapter, the Hiroshima Peace Park and the Memorial. Um, but to this, she adds uh, the, you know, as, as, as you said, the sort of problematic uh, uh, on the American side with uh, the rather, I guess, infamous is maybe the, the best, uh, uh, description, the, the uh, Enola Gay exhibit at the Smithsonian. Um, so these are the two case studies. And again, I mean, it, I think a lot of people know about the Hiroshima Peace Park and Memorial, and a lot of people know about the Smithsonian's uh, Enola Gay exhibit. Um, I think we should give a little background on the Enola Gay exhibit since we haven't talked about that yet. But um, it, to see the two sort of juxtaposed uh, in this way, I thought was was very interesting. And I wonder if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about the way that shell does that.
1: Absolutely. Um, It's a very elemental way to understand how memory cultures collide and also how memory cultures uh, spend as much time cloaking things as they do uh, memorializing things. Um, Stephanie talks about what she calls nuclear reclusion, which is that uh, nuclear things were born in secrecy and it's critical to their nature that aspects of them always remain cloaked or secret. Uh, and then she investigates the way that this operates in these two juxtaposed memorializations, ostensibly of the very same historical moment, the nuclear attack on Hiroshima. Uh, the first being the uh, the display of the Enola Gay in the United States and the Smithsonian Museum, the proposed display and eventual display of it, and the other being the construction of the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park. Um, to to speak a little bit to the Enola Gay, uh, at the in anticipation of the 50th anniversary of the nuclear attack on August 6, 1995, the Smithsonian exhibition was interested in. Uh, it, it was initially interested in salvaging the Enola Gay, uh, which was decaying in in a warehouse at that time. The Enola Gay was the plane that actually physically flew to Hiroshima and dropped the uh i actually i don't want to use that passive language and 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 it executed the nuclear attack uh on hiroshima uh, so the actual physical plane that was the plane that carried the bomb and uh, and inflicted the bomb on Hiroshima, the Enola Gay, uh, was it was was not maintained by the United States. It was basically becoming decrepit and falling apart. And there was an interest to uh, salvage the plane, to restore it, and to exhibit it in a larger exhibition as a part of the 50th anniversary of the attack. Uh, I'll just make a, a quick. Aside to mention that Enola Gay was the name of the mother of the pilot, Paul Tibbetts, the pilot who piloted the plane, he named the plane after his mother. Um, So what eventuated at the Smithsonian Institution was that in attempting to uh, take this uh, restored plane and exhibit it as a part of a larger exhibition for the 50th anniversary, uh, it just became a debacle for the Smithsonian in every sense of the word. And the person in charge of it, a prominent uh, curator at the Smithsonian, eventually resigned over it. There was actually a bill in Congress criticizing the attempts to make this. Part of what was so controversial for the Smithsonian was putting the Enola Gay into a context. Uh, They could not find a context to exhibit it in that was not – uh, in, that was not considered insulting by World War II veterans, by Manhattan Project veterans, um, by Paul Tibbets himself, uh, the pilot of the plane, uh, and so through through the the in, the desire to include, for example photographs of hibaksha photographs of the physical impact on human bodies of the nuclear attack there was an opposition to this that this was overly emotional overly sentimentalizing It that instead we should be talking about how many lives it saved rather than how many lives it took um and as uh as was pointed out by another Smithsonian member that Fischel quotes in in her chapter you know ultimately the whole thing was canceled over an argument about how many lives would have been saved in the in an imagined american invasion of japan so what ended up canceling it was a dis, was a disagreement about an imaginary event that never happened um, but the, the plane was eventually displayed simply by itself. You can see it at the Air and Space Museum, Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. It's the most popular attraction there. But it's displayed with absolutely no context at all, just the statement about what it is. Uh, and so here, partly what uh, Stephanie is talking about in this case is the things that have to be hidden. In this case, the things that have to be hidden are the human the human impact, the actual impact on people of this weapon. And one of the iterations of the display was going to be in the context of incendiary bombing. Um, the, what American with the American service personnel and, uh, veterans groups, what, what they wanted was they wanted a triumphant, a triumphal display. This was the bomb. This was the plane that ended world war two. Um, and this was the bo- the plane that carried the bomb that saved American and Japanese lives because it ended the war and therefore an invasion wasn't necessary. This is the construct of the American narrative of what the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki achieved. Um, in, in So here it's about how this memory could be constructed it had to be constructed in a way that was positive that was triumphal in which this was an act that was not an, even in the taking of hundreds of thousands of lives more lives were saved was was what was what was necessitated for its display in for american memory culture to be uh, adhered to so juxtaposed to this uh, confluence of what must be seen and what can't be seen is the peace Memorial park. Uh, and we talked a little bit about the, the way that it was constructed and the things that were included and the things that were excluded. Um, more explicitly what Stephanie talks about in this chapter is the, the utility of the museum in, in the peace park in creating a sense of world war II as a period of Japanese mm-hmm. victimization, uh, In the Peace Park itself, just as an example, uh, most of the buildings in the Peace Park are built by the city of Hiroshima, but there's one building in the park that's built by the national government. And in that building, in the narration of what happened, the very first uh, panel states, and I don't read Japanese, but I've been told that that the English on the panel is accurately a translation of the Japanese. It states, in the 1930s, Japan walked the path of war. The second panel, on August, and then on August 6th, 1945, a nuclear weapon was dropped on Hiroshima. So all of the colonial period, all of Japanese war aggression, all of the Japanese war crimes committed in China, committed in Southeast Asia, committed in Korea, are reduced to this quasi-mystical walking the path of war. And so in the Peace Park... Uh, and in the Japanese construction of the narrative of what happened, uh, it's there. What can't be seen is the Japanese aggression that led to an American attack on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. These things just happen out of the blue, and the Japanese people were victims of these attacks. So this is what she's looking at: is these counter the 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 way in which on both sides the story is it's essential to the story that certain things be hidden in order for the story to serve national needs. Um, And what she advises, which is where a lot of uh, the contributors to the book also focus, is the importance of focusing on people Mm -hmm. rather than state actors in remembering this culture on either side. And that this is a way to build a, a future memory culture that does not adhere to an instrumentalized agenda of one nation or another nation in how we think about Hiroshima and Nagasaki.
0: Okay, so um, I want to shift gears and and move on to the third section, uh, which deals with that third pathway that you and and, and Nico outline in the introduction, and that is um, ordinary people's resentment, suffering, and forgiveness. And there's three three chapters that deal with this. The first of those is Kathleen Sullivan's Nagasaki Reimagined, uh, The Last Shall Be First. Um, And I think you know the the context for this one is in some ways very obvious, but as Sullivan herself puts it, the word Hiroshima has stood in for both Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, throughout this sort of you know seventy plus years now of the post war period, um, and yet and I think she makes this really interesting point um, you know, in addition to. The sort of uh, what what's obvious in that, which is that that's a, a kind of violence of exclusion against Nagasaki, but also that um, you know we were just talking about the Enola Gay uh, and the first bomb to be dropped, but the second bomb, which is the world's first plutonium bomb to be used in war, uh, she, which she I think very provocatively calls the Nagasaki bomb, um, and, you know, still uh, the 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 plutonium bomb is still part of the American nuclear stockpile. Um, and, and this is, again, I think goes into that larger context of, you know, the, the nuclear, uh, bomb, uh, the, the, the creation of nuclear weapons and the actual bombings themselves were sort of moments in history, but that we are in fact, in a very profound way, still living through the, the aftermath of that. Um, but I think, you know, if I understand it correctly, I think Sullivan's main point is really about this uh an attempt to sort of de-erase uh, uh nagasaki right um and so i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about maybe the erasure of nagasaki itself i mean i don't know if you want to uh include any insight on exactly you know why, why it is that happened how does that happen um and then sort of what sullivan is getting at here um in in the article
1: absolutely um yeah this article is essential and uh, actually, when I asked Kathleen to write it, I, I pointed out that we ourselves were being uh, absolutely guilty of exactly what I I had wanted her to talk about, which is that you don't see the word Nagasaki on the cover of the book, um, even though we're talking as much about Hiroshima as about Nagasaki as Hiroshima not i mean not specifically in the chapters quite as much although there is uh, some amount dealing with the history of Nagasaki but the notion of using Hiroshima as a shorthand for both Hiroshima and Nagasaki um Kathleen mentioned this to me a long time ago, and I've really endeavored since then, whenever I'm talking about the nuclear attacks, to use the phrase Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and not to use Hiroshima as shorthand for it, even though, as I said, here we are guilty in the book's title. Um, I think that, the, in a sense, part of the way that this happened was can be seen as organic. Uh, humans are fairly naturally preoccupied by firsts. The first time that things happen are noteworthy, um, but a lot of it is uh, a lot of it is just the simple shorthand of having one word to talk about a complexity of things. Uh, however, as Kathleen acknowledges in her chapter, this is a violence of exclusion. You know, there were uh, hundreds of thousands of people affected by the nuclear attack on Nagasaki, uh, and to simply reduce them to an implied, uh, inclusion in the word Hiroshima is very disrespectful to the, their memory and also to the, the actuality of what happened in Nagasaki, um, Additionally, uh, there there are other things I would add, just peripherally, in terms of the, the why why it gets left out. Uh, for those who visit Japan, Nagasaki is pretty far away, whereas Hiroshima is fairly easy to get to. So, very few people make it all the way to Nagasaki. Uh, additionally, Nagasaki has a long and a complicated history, for which the bombing is is merely a part of that history. Uh, as Certainly, most of your listeners know it was a port of entry for Western cultures into Japan. It's long been an incredibly international city, even though it's not a large city uh, by Japanese standards. Uh, whereas in Hiroshima, uh, its history, beyond beyond the local important things of its history, its history really is uh, – it is centered on the bombing. It's really the defining thing of Hiroshima in a way that it isn't for Nagasaki. And so Hiroshima has embraced that. Uh, and it is very much a brand here in Hiroshima. Um, it's been said that the hardest word to find inside the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum is the word Nagasaki. Uh, so there's a lot of branding that goes on to emphasize Hiroshima was first, 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 first. Um, as Kathleen points out that's in a sense uh, to use Hiroshima as a shorthand, which we do, for talking about our own vulnerabilities, um, it, it's really inaccurate. Uh, and, and we do use that. For example, when the Soviet Union acquired nuclear weapons in the end of 1949, there was a flurry of articles about American vulnerability. To nuclear weapons that were all throughout the United States media. Uh, and the most notorious of these was a cover story on Collier's Magazine in 1950 with a large painting of Manhattan uh, with huge craters from nuclear weapons. And the name of the article emblazoned on the front cover was Hiroshima USA. Um, when there was even a uh, an op-ed in the New York Times in uh, 2005, when there was discussion of Al Qaeda seeking to uh, acquire a nuclear weapon, which it would detonate inside the United States, this this idea was referred to as Al Qaeda wanting an American Hiroshima, and there was an op-ed in the New York Times called "An American Hiroshima." So the word Hiroshima has been used as a shorthand for our own sense of vulnerability to nuclear weapons, whereas, as Kathleen points out very accurately, it's the Nagasaki bomb that is the actual weapons that we are facing and vulnerable to. Um, Just for a little bit of context, the Manhattan Project produced two designs of how a nuclear weapon could work. One design was called the gun design and the other was called implosion. They built both of those weapons. The gun design weapon was dropped on Hiroshima, and it used uranium-235 as fissile material. And the implosion design was the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki, and it used plutonium as the fissile material. After these nuclear attacks, the United States never built another gun design weapon, the weapon that was used in Hiroshima. Nobody built gun design weapons. Everybody built plutonium implosion weapons after that. So all of the weapons in the early U.S. arsenal were, as Kathleen says, Nagasaki bombs. None of them were Hiroshima-style bombs. Um, even and and this is the weapon. This is the weapon and design that was utilized by the later nuclear powers that came along. Even when thermonuclear weapons, hydrogen bombs, were developed, uh, a hydrogen bomb involves two stages. The first stage is the detonation of a traditional fission atomic bomb to create temperatures high enough in order to trigger the thermonuclear fusion component in the bomb. So every H-bomb also has a Nagasaki bomb inside of it that starts the chain reaction off. So it's actually Nagasaki bombs that we are all facing. That Collier's article, rather than Hiroshima, USA, should have said Nagasaki, USA because what it was depicting was attacks on manhattan with nagasaki style plutonium bombs um so it, there 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 is a way that uh this forgetting of nagasaki uh is branding and convenience and and just shorthand and human instinct um but it's a dangerous thing it's a dangerous thing to simply uh to simply uh, put in parentheses the tragedy of what happened in nagasaki as though uh it is though it, it not it it's just able to be included in the word hiroshima um and it is it, it is also a means of not grappling with the actual weaponry itself and the actual ongoing threat that human beings face and that caused so much anxiety and continues to cause so much anxiety so kathleen's chapter is is a bit of a wake up to us all that uh that we need to first of all we need to uh understand that that these two nuclear attacks need to be seen as two nuclear attacks and not simply be reduced to the word Hiroshima. Uh, and that if we're actually talking about nuclear weapons and risk from nuclear weapons and eliminating nuclear weapons, we really are talking primarily about the legacy of Nagasaki and not Hiroshima. Yeah,
0: um, and and that uh, I think it was you know it sort of um, again ties in so many of the, the the themes that we've been talking about so far um, that I think it's it's sort of a. There's a sort of, uh, for me, it was rather actually jarring in a good way um, to to jump into the the next chapter, uh, which is Adam and I think bronowski is it is that the correct pronunciation? Okay, um, uh, he, he's working with something very very different um, to 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 struggle with some of the th- same themes. The, the the chapter is the atomic gaze and ankokubuto in post war Japan. So first, I think you know, I have to I have to ask you to to tell us what. Buto is and what Ankoku Buto is, um, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about that, because what Boronowski is doing is he's looking at what I thought was a really, really interesting idea of the atomic gaze in these artistic works of Anko Kubuta, which is a, a, a dance form. Um, so, if you, and, and uh, if you could tell us, first of all, again about what Anko Kuboto is all about, um, and this idea of the atomic gaze and the uh, the, the ways that um, Anko Kubuta deals with um both the bombings themselves um and the uh and, and the hibakusha and the survivors
1: uh buto is a, a a dance form that emerged in Japan in the 1950s uh in 1959 and, and afterwards uh and in many ways it was a uh it, it was a counter aesthetic to existing and emerging uh, dance culture in Japan at the time uh which adam Adam describes as being on the one hand drawn towards Western forms and western styles, as was the case with so much culture in the post war I- uh, period here in japan uh and traditional Japanese styles like uh, no theater and so forth and against against these formalized um Formalized techniques and styles uh, emerged uh, Emerged the, uh, the Ankukobuto style, which is a really dramatic departure uh, as a form of dance and as an aesthetic representation from either of these others. Uh, on the one hand, what you have is you have – in, in a sense, neutralized human forms. You have human forms with white makeup and white clothing sort of shrouded and anonymized uh, in their visual appearance. Um, the, the movements are uh, sort of a slow, hyper-controlled movement. So what's being evoked is not human social interaction, uh, be it You know, the Western fluidity of modern dance or ballet, or be it the traditional cultural forms expressed in Japanese traditional Japanese dance forms, but you have uh, you have what Adam refers to as a subaltern aesthetic being expressed a in a a. A form that emphasizes as he says uh decay, death, and regeneration in the face of the positivist modernist post war recovery and uh central culture of Japan of uh capitalist participation, increasing affluence increasing commercial uh consumer oriented culture, and in a sense, what's being expressed through this, according to adam uh is uh, that uh there's a somatic dreamlike animal sense of loss of suffering of victimization a, a a deeply embodied sense of the terror and horror of what modernity had brought to Japan specifically um and this in a sense, is a way of trying to shift this, trying to shift again, the view of Hiroshima as this modernist recovering, you know, city of the future, uh, city of peace, city of political agency, and rather dwelling with the experiences of those who endured the nuclear attacks who endured the suffering of the war, who endure the suffering of the human condition in general. Uh, and this ran very much as a counter. Uh, and and there was some amount of art in, globally in this period of this, the fifties, sixties, and seventies that did embrace this, this positionality in, in response to the mainstream. Uh, but that uh, very specifically um The Butoh dance form in Japan was very counter aesthetic, uh, and was a way to give visibility, to give, uh, to give visibility and movement and agency to these, uh, to these deeply harmed and deeply, uh, grieving and, uh, Terrified and anxious aspects of what living with these weapons and living through these highly mechanized, industrialized forms of warfare it were as an experience.
0: Right, and so when I said at the the beginning that I found it you know, this sort of a jarring transition, I, and, and I said, you know, I said that that uh, was a very, I, I meant that as a positive, and I thought it was also you know extremely appropriate in terms of actually what the dance form is and sort of what bournonville is is uh telling us about um the 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 movement um you know Bhutto as a movement and also the movements of Bhutto. um so i thought that was um you know a particularly sort of powerful jump uh within uh the the book itself um and i think that you know in in an interesting way i, I don't I don't think that Bronowski used the word but in the in the next chapter um, Stuart Bender and uh, Mick Broderick used the word traumascape right and it seems to me that this was a word that really powerfully connected these two chapters uh, that are right up next to each other um, And so Bender and Broderick's chapter uh, is Australian POW and occupation force experiences in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, a digital hyper-visualization. And so uh, Broderick and and Bender, um, they're talking about the history of POWs uh, in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, um, which, as they point out, is... I'm rather, uh, you know, again, it's, it's one of those unknown parts of, of the history um, and the the uh, chapter that they did uh, came out of uh, an exhibit um, at the John Curtin Gallery in Perth. Uh, uh, called "Fading Lights": Australian POWs and BCOF Troops in Japan, 1945 to 1952, um, and which, as they say, strives to evoke the the trauma scapes of Japan. So, I wonder if you could tell us um, a little bit about what what trauma they're trying to work with, and also about the uh, the exhibit and its context.
1: Absolutely. Um... Another of those things that tends to be unseen when we, when in our memory of Hiroshima is the fact that uh, uh, in, in addition to the POWs who were here in Hiroshima and in Nagasaki, um, the occupation troops were Australian. So it was Australians who were living uh, and working as occupiers in Hiroshima and Nagasaki for several years. Um in that community of veterans, uh, you have a fair incidence of radiation-related illnesses because of living in uh, in, a, in an area that had radiological contamination, and specifically that was full of uh, radioactive particles that could be internalized into the body. Um, so, in in a part, in a sense, the this notion of trauma escapes is is. Taking the way that, that we in the West typically think of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is as places, um, and it's it's revisioning those places as places of, of trauma and of trauma for specific people, in this case for the Australians who spent several years living in these areas. And so partly what they did, uh, uh the, the, two of them are, uh, Stu is a filmmaker and, uh, Mick is a media study scholar. Uh, you Aust- they're both in Australia and they brought, uh, some very, very state of the art film technology to Hiroshima and Nagasaki both. And they created, uh, three-dimensional, um, three-dimensional videoscapes of places where the Australians had been. So they they had done a lot of interviews with Australian veterans about their time in Hiroshima and their time in Nagasaki, where they were, what they did, what their lives were like. Um, And they took a lot of the photographs that were in the Australian uh, government archives, as well as that soldiers themselves had had. And they went to many of these places and they – in a sense, they revisioned, they took uh, detailed, hyper-visual, uh, three-dimensional film of these places today and tried in the display to combine juxta- in a juxtaposed manner the these spaces as lived spaces by Australians who were present in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. After the war, they they could recreate less so the the locations for POWs who who were among the hibaksha, um, but there was subs- and this this was a small number of people, whereas there were tens of thousands of troops in the occupation forces, um, and then created this exhibition space in which people could interact with and move around in three dimensionally recreated uh, trauma escapes in which. These Australians had spent time and encountered radiation themselves, uh, and included in this is a a, a full three dimensional uh, representation of the interior and exterior of the A bomb dome. And this is available online. Anybody can download this program and look at the A bomb dome from from all sides and from the inside uh, in a three using three D. Uh, technology using 3D uh, viewing on their screens. Um, So in a sense, what they're doing is they're expanding the memory culture to include all of those Australians who were a part of this city and Nagasaki, the city Hiroshima where I am, and Nagasaki for the period of time immediately after the nuclear attacks. Uh, when the soldiers were here as occupation forces and bridging that with both what those places are today and also who those who those specific soldiers are today including their stories and their memories in this display uh, that was staged in perth
0: yeah thank you and I think that's um you know sort of it, it, it the, the, not only do we, you know, for example, uh, have a tendency to erase, for example, the, 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 the Zainichi community, uh, to erase Nagasaki, uh, and to shorthand everything with Hiroshima. And, and of course, you know, we have these, uh, problems that we've been talking about at the exclusion of, uh, you know, Zainichi on the, on the basis of ethnicity or, you know, visions, uh, like Isamu Noguchi's, which were not, you know, positive and modern enough. Um, but this is actually, you know, for, for me, particularly, I think as an American, And as a historian of Japan, um, it was an important, you know, reminder that, uh, you know, when we say, for example, occupation forces, you know, in I think that you know that's a uh, that's a shorthand um, that. Is, is used in a weird way, but it's almost simultaneous in, in excuse me, uh, 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 synonymous in a lot of people's minds, my, myself included, with sort of American forces. I uh, mean, you know, we have the, the image of MacArthur and Scap and the GHQ. I mean, it's a really important reminder that, you know, occupation forces was allied occupation forces and that you know, there were other people and that they were on the ground and that they were part of this um, effort. And so I thought this was a really uh, interesting contribution as well. Um, And following sort of in the, uh, you know, we're talking about performance and talking about art. Um, The next chapter is Yuki Miyamoto's contribution, which is called In the Light of Hiroshima um banalizing violence uh, or uh, banalizing banalizing violence and normalizing experiences of the atomic bombing um, and so this is uh, a contribution that deals with a rather controversial bit of performance uh, from what's almost now exactly a decade ago uh, we're recording in August of 2018 and this is an incident from October of 2008 uh, there's an uh, an artist's uh, co- collective here in Japan that goes by the, the, the name Chimpom. Um, and they, uh, as an airplane to draw the word Pika, uh, which we'll talk about a bit, um, uh, in exhaust, um, uh, over the, uh, atomic bomb dome, um, so that it could be seen that way. Um, and Miyamoto comes down, uh, very, uh, critically, uh, on this as, uh, you know, whatever the intentions of the artists may have been as a sort of contribution to the, banaliz- the banalization of, uh, of violence um, and the normalization of uh, the, that violence and of representations that continue to normalize uh, that violence and horror. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the, uh, the artist collective, if, that's, you know, if you think that's relevant, but also the, the incident, um, its context, and the fallout that Miyamoto is dealing with.
1: Absolutely, uh, Chimpon is is a fascinating arts collective here in Japan, uh, who are very focused on. Um, they're they're very focused on somewhat confrontational art, not necessarily art that is confrontational in its aesthetics by itself, but conceptually confrontational. Um, and so they've they've done a lot of provocative pieces, uh, just just as an example of the kind of confrontational work that uh, that they that they uh, savor that they love very much. There, there's recently an exhibition that was staged in uh, the evacuated exclusion zones in Fukushima, and what this is is this is an exhibition that can't be seen. Mm. Um, so there's a number of arts placed in houses, abandoned houses, inside evacuated areas of Fukushima where the radiation levels remain, uh, remain significantly high. And part of the idea is that as much as you may want to see these pieces of art, some of them by important artists, uh, the, the situating of them in, in a place that is an inaccessible place uh, reinforces to us that people's homes are inaccessible to them. And people's homes have been contaminated. And this is something that is ongoing. And you won't be able to see this art for 50 years because it'll certainly be at least that long before people are allowed to go to these places freely. Um, So whatever the art itself may be, we can't even approach the actual pieces themselves. It's the conceptual nature of the display that is confrontational. So this is just an example of the sorts of uh, the sorts of work they undertake. Um, In 2008, as you said, they hired a plane to skywrite the word, the Japanese kanji for pika. Um, I think it was the kanji or was it the
0: uh, uh, katakana? Probably it was the
1: katakana. Okay, yeah. In in the sky and uh, and pika, uh, and pika is is essentially its shorthand in this sense for explosion, for bright explosion like the nuclear weapon. And they did this up where the nuclear weapon detonated over the Peace Park. Um, and part of the idea, I think, was to was to represent what's not seen, which is this weapon up above, uh, and the threat and the distress that one might feel to have to to sense that there is this thing lurking up above you, which we all know to be so powerfully destructive. Um, and in a sense, uh, one of the things that uh, that Yuki is is criticizing is this this was condemned very widely when it happened. It was condemned by the city of Hiroshima, it was condemned by many groups, and Hibakusha groups in Hiroshima, and Chimpon themselves, uh, she she might say, I don't want to put words in her mouth, she might say became complicit in uh, banalizing this event and saying that this is to wake people up so that everybody will pursue peace. And in a sense, uh, rather than positioning the art as confrontational and disruptive to position the art in the traditional narrative of how all Hiroshima display is positioned, which is, this is to awaken your desire for peace, to help you to work, to eliminate nuclear weapons. So in a sense, they allowed the distress caused by by this uh, performance art to allow them to be channeled into the channels which Yuki is criticizing as normalizing uh, this violence um, by, by making it an instrument for political action and, and uh, future, uh, a future uh, political agenda. Uh, uh, she casts this against the background of the history of the so-called Hiroshima Maidens. Um, the Hiroshima Maidens were Hibaksha uh, 25 young women from Hiroshima who were disfigured by primarily by the heat of the nuclear attack. Uh, and they had uh, some scarring and muscle damage, uh, inability to quite extend their arms for some people, facial scarring and keloid scars, some of the physical effects of the high heat of the nuclear weapon on human flesh, on human bodies. Um, there were lots and lots of people who were so scarred uh, similarly, in Hiroshima and in Nagasaki, uh, but there was a historical event where a particular uh, Christian minister, Reverend Tanemoto, uh, had uh, uh, some amount of these women had taken shelter or comfort in a group in his church, and he sought to have uh, have them access uh, plastic surgeries and uh, reconstructive surgeries that would alleviate some of the uh that would alleviate some of the lack of mobility caused by the scarring and also eliminate some of the scarring so that uh the women would not have facial disfigurement specifically um eventually after having some help for some women uh, secured some help for some women in tokyo uh tanimoto along with norman cousins the american uh editor and publisher uh were able to bring 25 women called the Hiroshima Maidens to the United States for uh, plastic and reconstructive surgeries that were all done free of charge through a network of donors and host families in the New York City area. Uh, and these women journeyed to America. They spent a year in America. Um, they, they participated in uh, television shows. They participated in cultural activities in America. When they, when an earlier group had gone to Tokyo, they had participated in a visit to Sugamo Prison, where Japanese war criminals were imprisoned. So one of the things Yuki is looking at is the way that these these women, who were simply victims, who had been children at the time of the nuclear attack, uh, ended up being used by various groups. Uh, in Tokyo, uh, being used in an effort to help remediate the image of the war criminals and support uh, their release, most of whom were released from Sugamo prison. Um, In the United States, uh, to in a sense, remediate the conscience of Americans that rather than the people who inflicted these scars on these women, Americans were now the ones who remediated those scars. Uh, she talks very specifically about the necessity of this being women. There were no men that were included in this group. It was maidens. And what was being restored to them was beauty so that they could have happy romantic lives. Uh, she details how most of the women who participated in this had difficult times when they returned, partly because how did they, of all the people in Hiroshima, get to receive this free this free surgery and this year uh, living abroad in America? Uh, the fact that there may have been jealousies that these women were were somehow – they got to go to New York, they got to go to Disneyland, they got to do all of these things that people who were living in poverty in Hiroshima couldn't do. Um, and in a sense, she looks at this event overall as helping to make this violence banal. Uh, and she contrasts that with the Chimpon uh, event, that there's a way in which even, uh, even unintentionally, uh, people, people like artists like Chimpon who are trying to make a provocative statement, women like the so-called Hiroshima maidens who are simply young young people who were victimized by, by, uh, a nuclear weapon that they, they can become, uh, integrated into this, uh, cultural process, which, uh, which helps to shield us from the real horrors of, of what happened. And that this is, uh, this is a banalization as, as she says, a banalization of evil and of violence.
0: Yeah. So, um, I think that, that, uh, the, the, the chapter does a really nice job of, um, dealing with something that, uh, the next author, Thomas E. Doyle II um, calls in a different, uh, context, um, Japan's nuclear, uh, perplexity, right. That this, the, and, I, and I think this, these questions of, of, complexity of, in particular, the US-Japanese relation uh, relationship that you've just been bringing out, um, come out in a very different and interesting way um, in Doyle's work, which is, as I said, Hiroshima and the, uh, excuse me, uh, it's Hiroshima and the paradoxes of Japanese nuclear perplexity. Um, so Doyle is, uh, this is much more um, in dealing with this uh, political context of um, how is it that Japan, which uh, you know it, 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 as a as a nation uh, since 1945 has made it part of its international identity to be the the nuclear victim right um, how is it that that same Japan um, has at the policymaking level uh, been dominated by uh, individuals and groups who believe that nuclear deterrence um, is necessary, right? Um, And so this conflict between uh, what is referred to uh, quite often and and what uh, Doyle talks about, the the nuclear allergy here in Japan, which uh, one can it's sort of obvious how that would come about, but then also how the, the US-Japan relationship and uh, what is referred to as the American nuclear umbrella, um, how the 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 conflict between those two things play out. Um, and he talks about this sort of in an interesting way. He says that he's get, going to give a, a theoretical account of the metaphor nuclear allergy. Um, and so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, uh, the nuclear allergy, the, the American nuclear umbrella, um, and sort of Uh, how how they come together in Doyle's uh, theoretical account here.
1: Yes, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, And it's been this, this really uh, uh, painful and uh, strange paradox in Japanese culture in the post-war years. Uh, You you can see it in a sense, not, not as explicitly, but you could see it at first in the fact that uh, Japan became a staging ground for the Korean war. Um, and so part of the recovery of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as, as uh, Thomas points out, had to do with industries getting back to work supplying the U.S. war machine in prosecuting the war in Korea. Um, so there's a way in which participation in militarism uh, has helped revitalize Japan, even helped revitalize Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, at the same time, having suffered nuclear attack uh, being painfully aware of the cost of nuclear weapons on human beings, um, there there was what was referred to by uh first Americans and and then also by Japanese later as Japan having a nuclear allergy, which is the the notion. It specifically refers to the notion that U.S. wishes to uh, stage nuclear weapons inside Japan as forward bases for nuclear weapons for use in either use in combat, potential use in combat or for uh, helping to uh, move forward its lines of attack against perceived future enemies like the Soviet the Soviet Union or communist China, that uh, Japan's utility as a staging ground for American nuclear forces was immediately important to Americans, but that for Japanese it was an anathema to their position towards nuclear weapons, that Japan opposed nuclear weapons, Japan wanted to see nuclear abolition, Uh, Japan wanted to see all nuclear weapons eliminated. I say Japan broadly, Mm -hmm. but the people of Japan uh were were not in any way sympathetic to nuclear weapons, of course, after having experienced the use of nuclear weapons. Um and so this was referred to as Japan's nuclear allergy. <clears throat> and it was long a uh it was long a goal of American and Japanese policymakers to seek to cure this allergy, to seek to get peop- Japanese people past this. Um there were a lot of ways that this was undertaken. Uh, there's indirect, passive ways. For example, uh, the promotion of atoms for peace mm-hmm. in Japan. Uh, when, when atoms for peace, which is which is shorthand in, in the 1950s for the promotion of nuclear power plants, and nuclear energy. Uh, when atoms for peace was first brought up in Japan, it the the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum was taken over for a year in 1955 and had a huge Atoms for Peace display. Uh, to promote nuclear power plants here in Japan inside the Peace Museum. There was a small display, uh, promoting Atoms for Peace for years after that. The original intent was to build the first nuclear power plant in Hiroshima. The idea being that if the people of Hiroshima accept nuclear power, why would anybody oppose nuclear power? So you can see here this notion of, of inoculating the Japanese public against anxieties to nuclear power through, Using Hiroshima as an entry point for accepting this, accepting nuclear power. So, efforts, similar efforts were made all along to try to get the Japanese people to feel that uh, it was not, that it was allowable for nuclear weapons to be located inside Japan. Uh, as certainly everybody listening knows, Japan has Article 9, the Peace Clause of the Constitution, uh, which Forbids Japan from participating in wars of aggression or anything but self defense. And arguments can be made about how strictly that was adhered to over time, but it was certainly something that was a value that the public uh, embraced and supported that Japan was a pacifist country and that Japan would be actively seeking to achieve nuclear disarmament and lessen the threat of nuclear weapons. At this whole time, of course, Japan was under the nuclear umbrella of the United States. And any attack on Japan uh, would risk retaliation by the United States with nuclear weapons. So Japan was being protected by nuclear weapons this entire time. So this paradox of how a country could both be protected by nuclear weapons, could rely on nuclear deterrent as a primary facet of its defense strategy, uh, and at the same time Uh, refuse to allow nuclear weapons physically inside the country and seek actively to dismantle and abolish those weapons, Uh, this is at the center of that paradox. and so, one of the things I would point out as an aside is that the recent book by Daniel Ellsberg, um, "The Doomsday Machine," points out that nuclear weapons were physically stationed in Japan on a barge at Iwakuni Base in the water, so they were not physically on Japanese soil. Mm-hmm. Since the mid 1960s, uh, there had been there was awareness that Japan that American warships, American military ships, that that had nuclear weapons had docked in Japan, even though that was not supposed to happen. That was uh, that was against official policy, but it was known by the Japanese government that the American military was docking ships that carried nuclear weapons in Japan. That much had been acknowledged, but the actual staging of, of a depot of weapons inside Japan, I, I don't think was terribly well known before uh, Ellsberg's book.
0: Yeah, thank you. And, and I think this is, you know, it this whole um uh, uh chapter does a d- in, in it brings to to, to um, a a big uh you know political context back to some of the really granular work uh, that had been done um, and i really like that about the way that it kind of you know, it, it it uh it rounds out um that particular section the uh that pathway um and uh we then have, uh, one final sort of pathway here to deal with. Um, and this is, uh, the, the, the one that you're talking, you know, in the introduction about the, the, the field of the nuclear humanities, um, and the sort of new forums in, uh, that that is providing for people. Um, and instead of going through chapter by chapter in this last section, I want to introduce, uh, the, the authors and the chapter names, but, but, to emphasize that they're really having a conversation right on the page. And so um, this is, there, there's three chapters, uh, Marcelo Kuros, uh for granting a voice, uh, Ryuta Imafuku witnessing Nagasaki for the second time, and then Shinpei Takeda's anti-monument, a short reflection on writings by uh, Marcela Kiros and uh, Ryuta Imafuku. And so um, Shinpei uh, both Kuros and Imafuku are really writing about um, uh, Shinpei Takeda's uh, anti-monument. Um, and so if you could just tell us a little bit about who uh, Takeda is, uh, what anti-monument is, and then how uh, the, uh, the, the other two authors are engaging with his work, um, that would be a really helpful way to, to, to finish up here.
1: Absolutely. Um, yes, exactly. These last three pieces are in dialogue with each other. Um, and it's uh in a sense, it's it's a window for those of us who don't spend so much time in that world into the world of of artistic uh are, uh, of artistic display in in gallery settings and museum settings, and how artists work and how people think and talk about art. So it it centers around the work of Shinpei Takeda, who's a very important Japanese artist who lives in most of the year in Tijuana, in Mexico, um, and. Shinpei has done quite a number of very, very important works of art that deal with a broad range of issues, but he's focused in the last decade or more uh, on nuclear weapons and on hibakusha. Uh, he had spent some amount of time interviewing a lot of Japanese hibakusha who lived in North America and South America, recording their experiences, Um and Shinpei's work is uh, is three dimensional. It's very tactile. It's very embodied work. It takes up. Uh, it's abstract in it. It's in physical spaces. So in this case, uh, what the what Shinpei, the, you have two people who are responding to the uh, the display. You, two people responding to the anti monument. Uh, uh, exhibition, which was held in Nagasaki in 2015, uh, the 70th anniversary of the the nuclear attack in Nagasaki, uh, during during the month of August, um, there you have two writers that are responding to this exhibition, and then you have Shimpei, in a sense, responding to them. Um, the first the first writer, uh, Marcella, also talks a little bit about an earlier exhibition called Alpha Decay uh which was staged in Tijuana in uh Mexico uh a few years earlier <clears throat> pardon me in in that first display in and in, in these these things are in a sense of a piece in in alpha decay what shinpei had done is shinpei had constructed a container uh made of cardboard boxes in an outside exposed part of the exhibition space uh, and he had uh, covered this with material, and into this he had taken uh, sound. He had taken testimony of hibaksha about their experiences, and he had broken those testimonies down to actual sound waves, uh, much like the sound waves we can see when we're making a digital recording of ourselves. He had then etched these throughout the material in the interior of this space so that one could enter into this space and be surrounded by the physical sound waves, not the actual sound, but the visual representation of these sound waves as a container that one was within. And uh, it, actually, when the exhibition was held, which was immediately right at the, as the as the 311 event was unfolding, mm-hmm. uh, two Two Nagasaki Hibakusha uh, went and sat in the very back of this interior space constructed with these cardboard boxes, and they told their stories. And people who were attending the exhibit went into this space as well, and they were surrounded by both the physical representation of the sound of testimony and actual sound waves of testimony of people who were remote from them. So... In a sense, they were experiencing testimony as sound, both physically and auditor, in, uh, and what's the right word, auditorily. Um,
0: I, yeah, I guess. Oh, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> in,
1: in in audio form. So so for mm-hmm. them, the reception of this memory was uh, was. Entirely in the form of sound. And in a sense, by having these cardboard boxes outside, this is something that is fragile and something that cannot last, something that is a, a temporary moment. Um, in the anti-monument display in Nagasaki in 2015, uh, the, the center of that was a, a subsequent piece called Beta Decay. Uh, and, uh, and again, what, uh, what Shempei did here was he embodied the sound paths of these testimonies uh, with uh with material with physical material tactile material uh like if uh fabrics and created this large space that uh that bo- that expressed again these kinds of testimonies so he's speaking of art the, the performance of art of making this as a which is not something that the viewer sees, the viewer sees the end piece as this engagement in which this repetitive motion is a means of cultivating and materializing memory. Um, uh, Ryuta talks about, uh, I'll go back to Shinpei's work and, and the meanings of anti-monument in a second, but uh, Ryuta talks about uh the way that the artist internalizes, especially an artist working on a psychological traumatic topic like this, internalizes, in a sense, the trauma that they are uh, that they are consuming through testimony, in order to be altered by that and to be able to express it as an expression of this of this testimony as a means of transmitting memory through their physical activity of creating art uh, uh, art. Uh, utilizing this memory as as a source. Um, mm-hmm. Now, partly what Chimpe what Chimpe's intent was was to work against the way that monuments construct and ossify memory. So this is, in a sense, this is a useful ending in the book because it's looking at at what happens with memory culture, that with memory culture, with testimony, with all of these received pieces, they become ossified, they become monumental to the thing that's being remembered, um, and that this is this is a disservice to the actual experience and a disservice to uh, to what memory is. That memory is not something that stops. Memory is not something that becomes concretized. Memory is not the same thing for you as it is for me. Memory is a process. Memory is a process that is being rebuilt by all of us as we participate in. Encountering memory, internalizing memory, repeating memory, uh, passing on memory, and that this is a form of anti-monument. Uh, even, even though he's cognizant that he's making an artifact that is an anti-artifact, it's the process that is really the essential communication here, which is that this, this memory is not a thing that is Given to us by survivor through testimony that we now possess it's it's a living process in which we alter it in which we participate with it, and in which it is continually rebuilding itself and being altered by all those of us who interact with it uh, and so as we've looked as we've had author after author after author look at memory culture, in the end, we have an artist who is working with memory as a means of expressing uh his personal expression and what that and what his message to us ultimately is is that we are all participating in memory we, we are not receiving it it is not a static thing that it is a process of repetitive action and construction and growth uh so that's in the end of the book that is the way in which we we would like readers to understand that it is that it, it, that this process that it, all of these authors are talking about is an unfinished, ongoing, and evolving process rather than a study of something that happened.
0: Well, thank you so much. And as you say, that's a really, uh, it's a really great way to uh, round out the book uh, and also to round out the podcast. Uh, but I do want to, uh, in addition to thanking you again for, uh, for, for coming on today, um, ask a little bit about um, what you're working on now. And I know that, uh, uh, you know, maybe you can also speak to uh, what Nico might be doing, but if you have any new projects or if you can tell us a little bit about what you do down in uh, Hiroshima, I'd love to hear about it.
1: Absolutely, you bet. Uh, I'll, I'll mention first that uh, Nico, who's at the University of Melbourne right now, he's uh, he's working very strongly in the field of nuclear humanities. He's going to be editing uh, book series uh, on nuclear humanities, and um, so uh, he's he's working on that. He's also working on a book on nuclear uh, nuclear humanities in Australia specifically, and that book will be coming out, I think, in a year. Um, and that's where he works down in Australia. Uh, as for myself, uh, I've been working for many years along with one of the contributors to this book, Mick Broderick, down in Australia. Him and I have been working on what we call the Global Hibaksha Project, where we have been mm-hmm. doing collecting oral histories in radiation-affected communities around the world, primarily nuclear test site communities and nuclear production site communities, as well as nuclear accident sites. Um, and partly as an art growth of that work, but but also really parallel to it, I've been uh, I'm working on a monograph right now that I'm uh, nearing completion. That is uh, essentially a a revisioning of the Cold War, uh, the Cold War which we tend to look at as the long peace. Um, Essentially, after having studied for many, many years and talked to many, many people who lived with nuclear testing and the production of nuclear weapons and the subsequent exposures to radiation that millions of people experienced around the world, um, the notion that uh, the Cold War was a period of peace is is a luxury for those of us in the developed world who were engaged in prosecuting the Cold War. Uh, for people in the colonial spaces where nuclear weapons were tested, in the marginal communities that were exposed to radiation, who lived near nuclear production sites, uh, the Cold War was a violent period in which lots of people suffered and died. So I'm, I'm, exam- I'm re-examining the history of the Cold War through the lens of the manufacture and testing and accidents surrounding nuclear weapons.
0: Wow, well, uh, both of those projects sound really fascinating, and i'm I'm looking forward to uh, when when both of them come out. and I hope you'll uh, come on the podcast again when your monograph comes, and maybe we'll be able to uh, squeeze Nico in next time as well. Um so again, thank you so much for for uh, spending some time with us. I know it's a a long interview, and uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. It's my pleasure.